Well, yesterday was awesome. I got to peek in from the back and see the women's event yesterday, and it was phenomenal. I loved it. And, uh, you know, today we're here again this morning to hear from God's Word and to meet with Him. And uh, so let's just go ahead and get right to it. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, we're drawing near to the end of our time in the book of Hebrews, and we're on track to finish this book just after the new year. And then what we're going to have is uh, two special Sundays that will occur back to back. The first is that we're going to have a missions Sunday, and we've invited a missionary from Peru to come out and speak to us. Uh, My good friend Corey Kilgus will be coming on Sunday, January 21st. He's a church planter, Bible college director, uh, has a vision to plant churches throughout South America, and uh, I serve on the board of his uh, nonprofit organization that uh, works to plant churches throughout South America. So we're going to hear more about what what he's doing and how we as a church can uh, get involved in that, so... Then after that, we're going to have a baptism service on January 28th, and if you've ever been here for one of our baptism services, it's awesome. We have a horse trough uh, that we fill with water, and people get dunked, and, uh, but essentially what it is, as you know, is it's a bold proclamation of, of faith in Jesus as a person goes into the water. They are proclaiming that they've been united in the death of Jesus. And as they come out of the water, they're proclaiming that they've been united in his resurrection. And I know that many of you have been baptized, but if you haven't and you've begun to follow Jesus, maybe January 21st is your day to get baptized. So be sure to sign up for that, and uh, we look forward to it. Today we have Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking from verse 3 to 17, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read those verses, and then we'll dive right in and see what the Lord would want to speak to us. So with your Bibles open to Hebrews 12, we also have the verses on the screen. Uh, Let me read them right now. It says this, "'Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted.'" In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
Strive for peace with everyone and for, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and your word tells us right now that you are the Father of spirits. And I thank you that each person who's come here today has a spirit, and I pray that that spirit would be borne witness to by the Holy Spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then those who would receive discipline and chastisement as you see fit, Lord. God, help us to respond to your word today in a way that is good and right and holy Lord, help us to not shrink back from you, Lord, but to draw near to you that we may obtain your grace. We find, Lord, that you are such a kind and good God, and it's your kindness that brings us to repentance, and I pray, God, that we would all consider the ways, Lord, that we could draw near to Jesus today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, well... This is a bit of a heavy text. Anyone agrees? Well, let's just get into it and see how the Lord's going to speak to us. Verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So first, let's, let's not forget who the original audience of the book of Hebrews was. These were Jewish Christians who had in some way come to believe in Jesus. They, um, they had turned and, and come, come out, I should say, of their Judaism and fully embraced who Jesus was and what he had done on the cross. But there was this growing temptation at that time to leave the way of Jesus and his new covenant and to turn back to following God in the ways of the old covenant as they formerly had done. You know, there was persecution that was coming upon believers in Jesus at that time because Christianity was still relatively new and it it wasn't met with acceptance in the culture and the times in which they were living. And so these Jewish Christians that were receiving the letters to the Hebrew letter to the Hebrews, they were feeling discouraged. They were growing weary and faint-hearted. You know, they weren't sure if they wanted to continue following Jesus, especially if it meant that they would face hostility for their faith. So simply put, being a Christian was becoming difficult. So maybe, you know, what they should do is pull back a bit from following Jesus. And listen, there may be some people here this morning, and that would describe the place that you find yourself in today, where... You've given Jesus a chance to be the Lord and Savior of your life, but you're beginning to think that perhaps you would want to take some of that responsibility on for yourself. 
You think that by being in control of your own life, you can set something up for yourself that, that is a little bit more palatable, something that's a bit more easy and pleasant if you just had a little bit less of Jesus. It's not even to say that you want to be altogether done with Jesus, but at least if you could say you have your hand on the spiritual thermostat of your life, and if you could take this whole living for Jesus thing just down a few notches, then maybe things would be better for you. And the Holy Spirit was aware that this was a temptation then, and he's aware that this is a temptation even now. And so what God does is he provides us with truth from his word to convince us otherwise. And how does he do that? Well, he has us consider Jesus. Let's think about Jesus again. Let's think about how, how Jesus lived his life and how he endured. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You know, one of the great blessings of following Jesus is that we follow him wherever he goes. Meaning that Jesus will lead us and that means that he will not take us anywhere that he himself has not been. You're never going to have to endure something as a Christian that Jesus has not had to endure himself. He gets it. And so we consider how during the lifetime of Jesus, and even to this day in his glorified state, Jesus has had to endure from sinners hostility. So I don't know if you've realized it yet, but not everyone liked Jesus back then. And not everyone likes Jesus today. In fact, there are some people who just absolutely hate Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And it doesn't get much clearer than this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. All right, so listen, you are going to face a pretty big challenge in your faith if you care what people will say or think about you more than you care about what God says or thinks about you. Jesus even said, don't fear him who can kill the body and then after that do nothing. Fear him who can, after the body is dead, can cast both body and soul into hell. So there's this fear of the Lord. And there's also this understanding that Jesus wasn't really liked by all. Jesus was, in fact, hated by many, and he had to endure from sinners such hostility against himself. For instance, when the Jewish religious leaders and the Gentile political leaders of Jesus' day conspired together to sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion, Jesus was killed when he had done nothing that was deserving of death of that kind. And we think, right, about how we go through something hard, something difficult, even something that is hostile, and we think that we are be, being treated so unfairly and that we don't deserve it. 
that's fine to feel that way and to think that way, but the hostility that was shown towards Jesus was completely unwarranted and undeserved. We know something about Jesus is that he was perfectly sinless. Even Pilate said so. He said, I find no fault in this man. But even still, the people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus was crucified, and on the cross, Jesus shed his blood. And we now know that by the death of Jesus and the shedding of his blood, we now have the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus endured hostility against himself, even to the point that he would die on a cross, shedding his blood. Why? Because there was a joy that was set before him, and that was you and me. That you and I would be saved from our sin and from death through Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. That's why he endured such hostility against himself. And it makes us think, right? It makes me think. It makes me consider my own endurance when I think about Jesus' perfect endurance. There are several aspects of being a follower of Jesus that makes life more challenging. You know, if somebody said, you know, become a Christian and life is just going to be unicorns and rainbows and just cotton candy and just lovely. And look, I'll, I'll be the first to say, being a Christian, it is a joy. It is a blessing. It is the greatest abundant life you can live. But it's hard. It's challenging. There's difficulties that we face being believers in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you one sense of why that is. I can imagine for a lot of people here, you remember a time when you were not a Christian. And you remember how you were able to live in a way that you could do whatever seemed right in your own eyes. And you know that you used to participate in sin back in your BC days. Sins that maybe today you're not so proud of, but you remember that there was a time when you can sin and you didn't really feel bad about it. You just went ahead and did it. And then you came to Jesus. And all of a sudden, there were things that you once could do with such a carefree attitude. You could curse like a sailor. You can smoke like a chimney. You could do whatever it is that you wanted to do. And then you came into a relationship with Jesus, and things started to change. You started to change. And not all at once, right? But slowly and surely, Jesus started to change you. And the more that you learned of Jesus' truths and his ways, the more you realized how far off the mark you were. And then there's this now this new God-given desire that's been placed within you by the Holy Spirit. And as you begin to learn and understand God's word, you realize that you need to change and that you are going to live this life of becoming more and more like Jesus so that you can live a life that is pleasing to God. You want to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling, but that is hard at times. When temptation to sin is so strong and you feel so weak, 
Perhaps you found yourself even in your Christian life on this roller coaster ride of sin and obedience, and that can cause you to become weary and faint hearted. It sometimes is really exhausting to always be looking within your own heart to see the things that need to change, and your heart has perhaps become faint of wanting to change and wanting to grow. And maybe you've gotten to a place where you feel like you just could use a break from Jesus. Hmm. Have you been there? I've been there. I know what it's like to not want to progress in faith and obedience to Jesus. Because you feel exhausted in the fight against the flesh and the world and the devil, and you've been fighting, and God knows you've been trying, but man, you could just use a little break. If you could pull back from taking this whole sin and salvation thing so seriously, you, you realize, you know, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You could use a little nap right now from being so set on following Christ. Anyone been there? Or is it just me? Okay. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God, you know? So often we come into church and we want to be like, praise God, I'm so good, you know? And then we, we leave and it's like, oh, it's exhausting. And sometimes it's really good to come to church and to consider your own self and where you're at and, and to realize in a way that we say being real, bringing the real you to the real Jesus. And, and maybe right now you would say, yeah, man, that is the real me. I am tired. I am weary. I am faint hearted. But if you find yourself there, will you do something? Will you consider Jesus? Verse 4 gives us some perspectives. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the Christian life can be described as a struggle, and the struggle is real. And anyone who desires to live an authentic Christian life, they will have to struggle against sin. And that can get tiring. Dying to yourself and telling your flesh no was not meant to be easy. Jesus said that there is a call and a cost to being his disciple, and we have to understand that that's going to be a struggle. When you are waging war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, those enemies that want to bring us into subjection, and yet we have subjected ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there is a war going on, and it never ceases to exist within us. And so I'm humbled by this scripture that so clearly challenges my endurance in that warfare, in that race, in that living a life of faith. Because when I think that I have tried my very best to resist sin, there is still a lot more resisting that I can do. Because I don't know about you, but I have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. No, I, I give in to sin well before that. 
and yet I'm familiar with a man who has. His name is Jesus, and it's why he's my Savior, because Jesus never once sinned, and he resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood. And that's not something that I can say about myself. And that's why I need Jesus. I look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of my faith, because Jesus is my example and my Savior. He resisted sin so that I could be saved from my sin. And so you want to give up, do you? This life of obedience to Jesus is too hard, is it? I hear you. But look at verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? If at any point in your life you have said yes to following Jesus, then through him you have been adopted as a child of God, and God now sees you as his son or his daughter. And God has a way that he operates his family. He is our father. And we are his children, and we have come under his house. And, and, you know, when I think about my home, I've got a wife and three kids. And as a father, I have a way that I want to raise my children. And I love my children. And I want my children to represent my family well. And so there are certain things that I will do to make sure that my children are living in that manner. More than anything, I want my children to love Jesus, but I want my kids to obey I want my kids to listen to me. I want my kids to be good children, respectful people. And God relates to us in this way. By quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, we see that God addresses us in this way as a father would address his children, and he calls us to be obedient to his ways. He's got house rules. He's got ways in which we would come under his, um, under his care, under his love, under his leadership, and, and this is how he addresses us, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so this proverb here is telling us that the Lord is our father. And if he's our father, he rightfully disciplines us because we are his children. And as children, we're not to regard lightly the discipline of God. We shouldn't get upset or, or frustrated or down when God chastens us, knowing that it's done because he loves us and it's being done for our good. See, the Lord, as it says there, disciplines the ones that he loves. It's a kindness that God treats us this way. And so if you've been received into God's family, he will chastise you when you're not living in the ways that he's called you to live. And that's a good thing. So I don't know how that makes you feel. None of us like the idea of being chastised. That's a gnarly word. Chastised. <laughs> Disciplined is a little softer. Corrected is a little nicer. Whatever translation you have, I don't know how the NKJV or the NLT or the NIV puts it, but we have a Father in heaven who chastises us, who disciplines us, who corrects us, 
and this is a good thing, and we need it. Verse 7 through 8 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or as daughters. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the writer's telling these Christians who are his brothers and sisters in Christ that they need to be disciplined and and discipline will be the training that will cause them to endure to the end so that they can be saved. And this can be connected to that running of a race analogy that we looked at last week. And it can be connected to this family analogy where discipline is necessary for a good outcome. No one's just going to go and run a marathon without there being proper discipline to prepare yourself. And if we're going to be those who are in God's family, we realize we need this. We are children. What do we expect? For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Well, I can think of some, some situations where I've seen that. You know, I think a lot of us have seen the result of bad parenting and how that goes. But discipline's a must, and if we're going to be in God's home and in his family, we have to receive it. And in fact, if you're not disciplined by God, it says you're an illegitimate child and not a son or a daughter. That's strong, is it not? That's because this is an exhortation. An exhortation is a strong encouragement. It's an encouragement, but it's, it's strong-worded. It's serious. These are serious matters. And if you want to be a son or daughter of God, then expect to be disciplined and chastised. If you committed to walking with Jesus, then, then realize if you are getting out of step, if you go astray, if you backslide, that discipline that's going to come upon you is going to be a gracious work of God so that you can be corrected and brought back into his loving kindness. And if you think that you have this agreement with God, where, where you can live however you want, you're wrong. As if you can sin and God just sort of winks like, <laughs> you know, boys will be boys. If you can sin without the father of spirits making your spirit ache on the inside, do you really know God? God is holy and he is good. And if you never receive the corrective work of God in your life by his discipline and chastisement, then perhaps you're illegitimate, so you're not really his. If you don't have, for instance, think about this as sort of a picture, if you don't have the family resemblance where people can say, you know, you really look like your brother Jesus, especially as you grow older then are you really one of God's kids? Perhaps right now you despise that I speak these things from God's word. You scoff at the idea of a God who disciplines and chastises his children. But before you write me off, or you write, you can write me off, I don't care. Before you write God's word off, let's consider something for a moment from verses 9 through 11. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is very practical, right? It it puts us all into sort of something that we've known, something that we've experienced. Each of us have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and, and we respected them. Now, for some of you, you read that, and you're like, that's right. You know, my dad kept me in check. I had a mother and I had a father who, who raised me with discipline and I respected their rules. But, but look, that's not the case for everyone, especially more and more today, where, where personally I had four father figures by the time I was 14 years old. Now, even having several different fathers growing up, I still respected them and, and And they still disciplined me, even though they were my stepfathers. Now, now there's going to be in the church varying backgrounds of family. I understand that. There's going to be some who have had fathers and some who did not. Some who were disciplined and some who were not. Some who would, would look at this and say, yep, my parents disciplined me and I respected them and I really thanked them for how they did that. Others where you would say, no, you know, I did not have a mother or a father to discipline me. Or, or, or I did and they, they didn't do it well. And I understand that. But intuitively, can we just say this, that intuitively because God created us, we can all say that parents are to be respected And children are to be submitted and disciplined under the respect of their parents. That is how the world ought to work. Intuitively, we get that. So whether you had a parent or you are a parent, we all know that discipline is something that is done for a short time maybe 18 years old. If you are still, if you're like 28 and you're still being disciplined by mom and dad, it's time to move on. (laughs) Honor them, respect them, but there's something about children, and, and in our culture, this is sort of zero to 18, right? Maybe a little longer for some, but it's done in a way That seems best to each family. You know, some got the wooden spoon. Some got the soap in the mouth. Some just got the look. And by the way, this sermon is not a how-to on disciplining your children. You don't need to call CPS on me. I don't... I got the wooden spoon. I shouldn't say that. I love my mother, and I respect her greatly for how she disciplined me. But anyways, wooden spoon, soap in the mouth. We could all talk about the different ways in which maybe we were disciplined. Each family did what seemed right to them. (laughs) And I don't know who some people were consulting, because there's some that just does not seem right. (laughs) And, And... 
This is the way we need to go about this. Fathers and mothers need to seek the Lord to discipline their children in a way that is good and right. Let it be done in a way that you could say, this seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Try to emulate the Father's discipline and love. And at the end of it all, we know that discipline is good and that it helps us to share in our holiness, but, but we're not going to be the best at it. See, did we ever get disciplined and say, thank you, can I have some more, please? It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You got that right. Don't you appreciate that the Bible is real and direct? <laughs> for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As I look back on my life, and hopefully you can look back on yours too, I look back and I'm thankful for the ways that I was trained by discipline. You know, I was completely independent on my own at 18 years old, and there is much that I had to learn in the way of discipline at 18 years old because I didn't learn a lot of it growing up. Being completely financially independent at 18, paying my way through college, working jobs, doing ministry, all of these things are disciplines that I learned because I had a heavenly father who was teaching me so well. But I've made a lot of mistakes. I've really messed up on a few occasions. And I love how people are always like, I want to know how the pastor really screwed it up. <laughs> but I appreciate how I've been corrected, how I've been disciplined, how I've been chastised. It has made me a better man. I'm not perfect, and I'm still to this day needing discipline from the Lord. I'm nowhere near perfection, but I have been trained by discipline. Now, now, as we think about all this, we think about how God deals with us. He uses discipline so perfectly in our lives to train us in righteousness. And we recognize that the fruit of righteousness can only come with God's discipline. If God does not correct us, if he does not discipline, chastise us, we're not his kids. And so we have this exhortation. If you are getting out of step with God, he will correct you. If you are wandering off into sin, if you are being disobedient to God, God will chastise you because he loves you. He will discipline you because he cares for you. And to do it, we need to see this as a grace that God deals with us in this way. And how it usually works, at least in my understanding of how God's dealt with me, is it usually starts out very gently. Where the Lord comes gently to me and says, what do you want to do with this sin? You want to put it away? Let's put this sin away. I'll wash it. I'll cleanse it. Let's be done with it. And if I resist that, and I continue in my sin, and I cling to my sin, or my sin clings so closely to me, however you want to look at it, God comes to me again. He says, Daniel, how about this sin? Are you done with it? No, no, not yet, Lord. And then he comes again, <clears throat> my son, Daniel, are you done with this sin? Can, can, I, I will cleanse it, I will forgive it, I will put it as far as the east is from the west right now. Repent, 
Turn from this sin. Give it to me. I will deal with it. And he deals with me ever so gently, ever so privately, until there comes to a point that if I am continuing to resist him with my rebellion, God takes it to another level. And you never want to get to the point where God is going to have to bring your sin to the light, where there is public embarrassment, where there is a way in which he sort of breaks your legs. And so it's so much better to yield to the gentle promptings of the Holy Spirit early until he has to break you. And if you can hear this and you agree that discipline is from God and God the Father loves you and and you can agree and know by experience that this is a good thing, then you can keep on reading this exhortation, verse 12 to 13. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. I love that I am a son of God, that I'm his child. I love that my father corrects me. And you know, I sat in a chair preparing this message all week, preaching this message before to myself before I've preached it to you, lest I be disqualified. But as you sit here in this chair today hearing this message, this is meant to heal you. This is meant to make you better. See, when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling faint-hearted, and when I want to pull back on my faith, and when I want to wander off into sin and do whatever seems right in my own eyes, I have to pause and consider Jesus. And when I look to him, I realize he is worthy to be followed. And I keep on running my race. I, I lift my drooping hands I strengthen my weak knees. By the word of God, I see the path that is set before me, and I set my feet straight. I remember, like I gave the exhortation last week, that where my eyes are looking, my feet will follow. And so if I fix my eyes on Jesus, whom I love, I set my feet right, and I walk on his path. And his, this path is lit up for me by the word of God. His word is like a, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. I look to Jesus. He's my God. He's my Savior. He's my trainer. He's my healer. He's my friend. And I realize I need to keep going. There's no other option. Instead of wallowing in the struggle. It's so silly Stupid when people wallow in the struggle. Did Jesus die for nothing? I look to Jesus. He's where my help comes from. And I get strength and I get healing. If, if, if you came to church today and this message is God's way of disciplining you, receive it. If he's speaking to you this morning, listen to him, look to him, see that what is lame may not be put out of joints. Stop being lame. Sin makes you so lame. Stop being lame. If I could use that word. It's maybe not the best, like, you know, exegesis of the word lame in the text. 
It's talking about having like legs that are put out of joint and you just, you don't want that to happen. But don't be lame. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. He loves you. His kindness is here today to draw you to repentance. Why not be healed? Verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The first person that you need to make peace with is God. Make sure that you're good with him today. Many of the New Testament letters begin and end with this greeting that says, grace and peace to you, and it's always in that order. And the reason why it's always in that order is you can't have peace with God until you first receive the grace of God. Jesus purchased that grace with his blood, and so you can receive this kind offer of peace. And once you have peace with God, then it says strive for peace with everyone. It's going to be really hard to be at peace with people if you're not at peace with God. So get that settled first. But on the same hand, if you're not at peace with people, it's also really hard to be at peace with God. See, loving God and loving others are the two greatest commandments, and there's something about having love and joy and peace amidst your relationship with God and your relationship with people. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. And look, this means you actually have to try. You have to strive for this peace. And I understand that this is something that comes easier to some people. There are some people that are just so agreeable, people that are just so reasonable, <sighs> those kind of people, right? Uh, there's, there's those people where, you know, if you have a problem with them, it's likely the problem's with you. They're just so agreeable, so peaceful. Then there's certain people... <laughs> where it's just not so much. Some people who are just so unpeaceful in their relationships. And let me say this, if, if you're someone who just lacks peace in any and all of your relationships, seems like there's this vortex of pain around you, there's no peace, there's no joy, in your relationships, let me say this gently and lovingly, but have you considered that you might be the issue? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth. But it's not just peace that we seek, it's holiness as well. Verse 14 says, and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Anyone, anyone who looks at my kids, especially my sons, We'll see that they are mine. We have a family resemblance. My kids look like me. I look like my kids. And the same ought to be true as children of God. We are to look like our Heavenly Father. And our brother Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so if you want to look like your Heavenly Father, then you look like Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus looks like, read the Gospels. And that means that people will see our holiness. They will see that we're our Father's kids. And it's true that in this world, we're representatives of the Lord. 
We represent his love, we shine his light, we spread his peace, we give his joy, and in all of that righteousness and holiness, we see that there's a resemblance in belonging to God. There's, there's discipline and chastisement that comes upon us in order to pull out the things from us that don't look like God and to be able to enhance and increase those things in us that do look like God, and that's called sanctification, which is that ongoing process of you growing in holiness. And so, if you don't have this holiness, how's anyone going to see the Lord in you? Now, verse 15, I'm going to challenge you to discipline your mind to stay attentive because we're coming to an end, and you guys have been so wonderful. Um, the writer is going to provide two common areas that often need correction from God. You might already know what that is for you. You've been sitting here, you've been listening to this message, and and I've been speaking sort of in general terms of God coming and disciplining those whom he loves, and the Holy Spirit already has his finger on you. You already know what it is. You already know where you need to repent and change. But there's two common areas that often need correction, and the writer of Hebrews seems to draw them out because of perhaps maybe how common they are among, among people. So verse 15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know, I preached this message this morning because it's in God's Word, and it was the next section that we came into uh, to Hebrews. Merry Christmas, everybody. This is your Advent message. Um, but, but it was ordained by God that we would hear this message today. And I, I've worked very carefully with the Scriptures and by the leading of the Holy Spirit so that you would hear God's Word and that it would produce faith in you to consider Jesus, because in Jesus there is grace. The free gift of salvation came by the blood of Jesus. And I've been serious, but I also pray that I've been kind to you today. I think that represents God's heart. Kind but serious. Every week, that I stand in this pulpit, I see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Grace changes everything. When you encounter the grace of the living God, there's no turning back. And grace is here for you to receive today. It is here from the Father of Spirits, and he says, live. And the Holy Spirit, if he's been convicting you to come to him, He's saying, come. But what prevents people from coming? Two things. Number one, bitterness. Bitterness is the root of unforgiveness. And bitterness bears bad fruit. Perhaps fruit has been producing from your life and it has not been righteousness. The fruit of holiness and peace is going to be the manifestation of what is in the heart and in the roots of your soul. You guys know I was in Colombia recently, and we went to a friend's house, and that friend had a 
particular fruit tree that she absolutely loved, but then it stopped bearing fruit. And she tried so many things to figure out why this tree had stopped bearing fruit, but then it came to the point where she decided to cut down the tree. And when they opened up the tree, they found that the insides were hollow, that some parasite of some kind had destroyed the heart of the tree, that there was this bitterness in the roots that killed the tree from the inside out. And if there's something on the inside of you that has been destroying your heart from its roots, it eats away at you even as we speak. The Holy Spirit is being so kind to you right now to show you what that is. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Why not choose life? Why not be healed? Jesus is in our midst today. He's saying, come to me. Though your sins be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. You're weary. You're faint-hearted. Carry this heavy burden. You think you've been able to bear it yourself? You need to stop. You need to come. You need to live and be healed. God says, I will forgive you. Friends, be very careful trying to bear the weight of your own sin, especially if that be unforgiveness in your heart. It's unforgiveness that is often the source of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble and defilements. Unforgiveness is a very dangerous sin. Consider how Christ has forgiven you and then forgive others. And then verse 16 to 17, it says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The second uh, sin that the writer of Hebrews brings up after bitterness is sexual immorality. And you did not want me to go there, did you? But we want to see to it that by the grace of God, no one fails to obtain his grace. The Bible says, let there be no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. When we get to Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to address sexual immorality again. But just to give a clear and concise meaning of sexual immorality, the Bible clearly teaches that sex is to be between one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. And any sexual behavior outside of God's intended design and purpose for sex is sin. God created sex for two purposes, one for pleasure and the other is for procreation. And God actually has quite a bit to say about sex. God is not against sex. He created it. He made it. He blessed it. What God opposes is he opposes sexual immorality because of the damage in which it causes. It's like um, we're all sort of in this wintertime season. We all love to have a nice little fire in the fireplace. You know, a fire in the fireplace is wonderful because it is within the, the context in which fire should belong, where it's warm and it's good and it's comforting and it's, it's, 
It's healing. It's all of these, it has all of these things. But a fire that is uncontained can be destructive and damaging and cause great havoc upon the earth. And so God is not against sex. What God is against is sexual immorality. And if someone who is a son or daughter of God engages in unholy acts of sexual sin, God's chastisement and discipline will come upon that son or daughter because he loves them, and it is such a good thing. And that's not popular in our world today, and and I might even face some hostility for saying it. But I love you to say it. I want to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And so the writer of Hebrews uses Esau in connection to sexual immorality for two reasons. One is how easily we're pleased by sin, and two, how much we can lose because of sin. If you don't know the story of Esau, go read it in Genesis chapter 25 and 27. But Esau was tricked into selling his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. And it's a picture of how one foolish act of sin can cause us to lose so much. Now Esau was still blessed by God and was able to live a full and fruitful life, but he never got his birthright back. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for God found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It shows us that we can sin and be forgiven And life can continue on, but we may have to bear what are the consequences of our sins. And that's a discipline of the Lord as well. All right, as we end, I don't like the last words of this text. They scare me. I don't like them one bit. It says about Esau, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I don't like that scripture. Because I understand with God that any time I repent, God forgives me. I like the words that we read just before it. They they speak a better word over us. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So if you've listened to me preach this morning and it has caused you to consider Jesus and to want to change, I'm so happy because it's not merely me who's speaking, but it's been the word of God and the Holy Spirit speaking to you. He's calling us to walk in peace, obedience, holiness, faithfulness, and so much more. And so If you've listened to me speak with this seriousness this morning, it's because I love you. God loves you. And so shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this time. God, I thank you constantly for this. That when this church receives the word of God, just as they have heard today from your word, they, they accept it not as the words of man, but as it really is the word of God. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for your spirit to illuminate it to our hearts here today. Your word 
is at work in those who believe. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who is your son or your daughter and your word has gone out and pierced, it's cutting away at the things that don't belong, Lord, I just pray, God, your kindness and your refreshment would come upon them today as they would turn from sin and turn to you. If there's anyone here who wants to believe in Jesus today, Father, I pray that you would draw them in and that they would look to Jesus and be saved. And as everybody has their heads bowed and their eyes closed, I want to ask, is there anyone here this morning where you want to follow Jesus? You want to come to him turning from your sin and walk as a disciple of Jesus. You've never done that before, but today you're saying, I want to, I want to live, I want to be healed. Uh, would you lift your hand just right over your head so I can lead you in a prayer of salvation? I see you right down there. Wonderful. Praise God. Is there anyone else here this morning who wants to receive Christ as, as their Savior, their Lord, their King? Okay. If, See a young woman right over here who raised her hand. Just if, if you have your hand up, or even if in your heart you want to pray this prayer, just pray this after me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on a cross for my sins because in my fight against sin, I have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I have given in to sin, and sin has brought death to me. But I've heard this message today that says I can be healed, I can live. So Jesus, I turn to you today to be my God, to be my savior, to be my friend. I wanna set my feet upon your path. I wanna walk with you all the days of my life. Jesus, save me. Amen, amen.